0: Of commentary on the wider society feels like a missed opportunity, but The Last Dance offers the best and most intimate look at how Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls dominated the sports world in the 1990s. That's from Eric Deggins of NPR, that's right, 10-part series from ESPN, documentary On Michael Jordan the Bulls called The Last dance. we are reviewing eight episodes have aired so far, two more still to go. In addition to that, a couple of flicks, one I had never seen before, Rounders from 1998, Matt Damon, John Malkovich, John Turturro, and the great Edward Norton. Also Martin Landau, what a cast. I finally saw that, big poker movie, and also a movie that I absolutely love, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. I first saw it about 15 years ago. Since we have the time, I watched it again. It's tremendous. Also, you're going to love our Mount Rushmore, courtesy of my man Dan Stanzik. He gave me this idea, I think, from Mike Golick Jr. Mount Rushmore of tear scenes in movies. Trust me, there's a lot of them that get the tear ducts going. And lastly, Total Recall, Oscars 2006, those films from 2005 when Crash one best picture 15th anniversary of those Oscars once again thank you for checking out File. listen I understand the fact people are not listening as much right now Nobody's commuting people are not at the gym so the fact you're still listening I can't thank you enough for that because trust me podcasts are being hit all over the place so I appreciate your support if you can do me one other favor if you can go to apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button and also rate and review I rank my movies at a four-way police you can put a review out of five stars we would really much appreciate that as I mentioned in the previous episode was diving into succession, and I said the first season was good to very good. Well, season two was sensational. I got a DM from a guy who said, You know, I've been a longtime fan of yours and your movie reviews, um, but I didn't like when you said you were unwilling to give succession a chance because it's about a rich white family. I'm unsubscribing, fam. So I wrote back, and uh, my friend Cabby taught me years ago never get into war words, just, you know, sorry, you feel that way. So I said, Uh, To clarify, what I said was, initially I was hesitant to watch Succession, because it's about a rich white family, of which I am not. Um, But now that I'm watching, I think it's tremendous. Uh, Thank you for your support. If you're unsubscribing, well, thank you for subscribing this way along. He then writes back, Hey, it's, I think I was had a few too many drinks. I was a little inebriated. All good. <laughs> so if you're going to send me a message, please do make sure you're cogent, and then I'm happy to, uh, to discuss. My friend Brett Carrick, Yusuf's basketball coach, his son Dylan is appalled by the fact I keep slamming Back to the Future 3 in the previous episode. I will say, upon further review, I, I would not sit through the entire movie. I don't have uh, the inclination or the time or desire. I watch bits and pieces of it, and Dylan probably agrees with my son Yusuf that 3 is not that bad. Me and Joe gave it a scorching review and said, we wish it never happened happen. It's just very repetitive and recycled, but I guess if you like the Old West, I mean the last sequence where they're trying to catch the train of the DeLorean is pretty good. At least Doc gets a love interest, but I'm still telling you, one is incredible, one of the greats of all time, two is good, although it does not hold up as well as it does, and three, I'm still sticking to my guns, Is not nearly as good as two, but hey, what the hell. If you're going to watch the Back to the Future trilogy, you might as well watch all three. Uh, as far as uh, what we're going to do this time on the podcast, The Last Dance, before I get to that, I want to just... Another thought here about succession. So, season one, you know, the, the pilot's excellent. I think the pilot hooks you right away. But episodes two, three, and four take a little time to get going because the Brian Cox character disappears from view, or at least from speech. So, once he comes back, I think the episode that they really kind of found their footing is when Kendall plots the takeover. And that whole sequence is amazing. You know, he's racing on the streets of New York on the phone, and his dad is sitting there realizing his son's trying to take him over, and he's putting it to a vote. That line that he says to Kieran Culkin, you best be smelling your armpit, has got to be one of the best lines of the entire show. Absolutely tremendous. And uh, I took Joe's advice after watching both seasons – now I want to dive in, learn as much as I could. Brian Cox was on Colbert. You know, he's on Jimmy Fallon. He's telling stories. Originally, he is from Dundee, Scotland. Originally, they said on the show he's from Quebec, Canada. And then Peter Friedman, who plays Frank, told Brian Cox, he's like, hey, they changed where you're from. He's like, what do you mean? He was like episode nine now. Apparently, we're going to Scotland. He's like, well, I'm from Scotland. What the hell? So then he called Jesse Armstrong. He's like, yeah, we just thought it'd be cool if you were Scottish because, you know, that's what you actually are. So he said it was interesting when they went back to shoot there on location because he has very good feelings about being from Dundee, Scotland. But the character, of course, is revolted by it. So he has to uh, play different emotions there. Also, with regards to season two. So like I said, I think they found their footing. The season one finale is a jaw dropper. And I just want to thank all of you. I, I I don't know what's a bigger shock right now. The fact it took me this long to watch Succession, which is arguably the best show on TV. Like right now, it's a very short list of Better Call Saul, Succession, and uh, Barry, which, of course, I love. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is terrific, too. but uh, Or the fact that nobody spoiled it for me. Like, I mean, I tweeted, I'm watching Succession. I would have thought somebody would have spoiled it. So I'm not going to spoil it for you either. I think that's wonderful. In this day and age, I was able to watch a show which was made two years ago uh, Joe didn't tell me, nobody told me. They just said, watch, it's great. Okay, great. And I know I can see what it's all about. The only spoiler I will give is Kendall's rap is one of the great scenes ever in a dramatic show. And that's why Jeremy Strong, I think, won the Critics Choice Award for Best Actor. Uh, in terms of Emmys and Awards successions, its first season it won for Best Writing, and it won for the score. I mean, Joe and I discussed the last episode, the music's incredible. And Nicholas Patel won an Emmy for season one for the music and in the uh, that title sequence. And Kieran Culkin was nominated for Supporting Actor, did not win, but Jesse Armstrong did win for Best Writing. So season two is eligible for this year. So the Emmys are supposed to take place in September. And as I was saying to Joe last time, I think Succession is going to be the heavyweight frontrunner now. Now that Game of Thrones is gone, you're looking at the best dramas on TV. It's going to be something like this. Succession, Ozark, Killing Eve, The Morning Show, Handmaid's Tale, Better Call Saul. Like those are your six, you know, kind of vying for spots. And I think Succession has got all the momentum. It won the Producers Guild Award. It won the Directors Guild Award. And the Golden Globes, they won Best Drama Series. And Brian Cox won Best Actor. Uh, it was only a few short months ago, back in January. It feels like a lifetime ago. So I think when the Emmys uh, do come out this year, they're probably going to be virtual, obviously. I don't think we're going to be having Emmys in uh, September in Los Angeles. But I think Succession will be the big winner. Great, great show, Joe. I'm just happy nobody spoiled it for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that When Game of Thrones was at the height of its power, everyone on Twitter, on social media was talking about it. And I feel like this show hasn't percolated enough yet to where it's really hit the zeitgeist of social media. But that season two cliffhanger had to be one of the best I'd ever seen. What did you think?
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, listen, you talk about a great drop the mic moment. I mean, season one was jaw-dropping just because of the the shocking turn of events which took place. Season 2, you go, oh, my God, I did not predict that happening. And it was one of those gasp moments. I mean, that's where, again, the show gets elevated because it's so unpredictable and the moves they make. And I was watching an interview Jeremy Strong did on Gold Derby, and it's on YouTube. You can check it out. He was talking about just the character and what he's been through and the fact that, you know, season 1, he's getting kicked to the curb, and season 2, he's kind of back with, with the resurgence, and that was interesting to play. He also cited a quote from Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, said that in the absence of love, power reigns supreme. So he said he's often using that quote as a touchstone to explain why these characters are always jockeying for their father's affection. And Brian Cox, in those interviews that I mentioned, he said to him, it's all King Lear. He said, listen, I played King Lear in England and Scotland. As soon as I read the script, I said, okay, it's King Lear. The difference is in King Lear, he can't wait to give up the kingdom. He, He wants to give it to somebody and makes a mistake here he's reluctant to do it because he wants to see which of his kids is most worthy and he wants them to fight for it and joust for it. And he said the only question he had to Jesse Armstrong when he read the script was, does this character, Logan Roy, love his children? And he said, yeah. He said, okay, well, then it's a lot easier to play. Because if he doesn't, which some parents don't, I can go in a different direction. But if he does actually genuinely love his children and just his thought process and bores on the floor and telling everybody to F off, okay, that's just who he is. But he does at his heart love his kids, okay, I can play that.
1: Yeah, and speaking of King Lear, too, um, just Shakespeare in general, there's one episode in season two where, and a little bit of a spoiler alert ahead, but there's that one episode in season two where they go for a possible merger, and there's that other family there, and they're just quoting Shakespeare, and Brian Cox has like the perfect line at the end of the episode where he's like, and this is after just tons of Shakespeare being quoted by this family, he goes, you know what my favorite Shakespeare quote is? Take the fucking money. And then he just <laughs> dr- walks out. So good. Yeah.
0: Oh, I agree. I mean, as I said before, the profanity has like a musicality to it. That dialogue in that show, I mean, I think it's going to win a ton of Emmys, but Jesse Armstrong has got to be a lock to win. And uh, Joe's going to try to get him on Cinephile. Hopefully, we can talk to him about the show. And, and listen, Brian Cox, said he read the script on election night uh, in America when Trump won. That was when he first read the pilot. And he said, wow, what a confluence of events. Our show is about a Trump-esque family, a Murdoch-type family, a Disney-type family, like where there's so much focus on the 1% and the rich in America. I mean, it's a great example of a show really hitting the zeitgeist of what's happening in the world right now, and that's why Succession, even my apprehensions, why would I relate to a rich white family? Well, trust me, when the dialogue's that good and the performances are that killer and the characters are so dislikable, but you love to hate them, uh, it's really an irresistible concoction. If you haven't done it yet, go watch Succession. We move now to The Last Dance, ESPN's mammoth documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. One thing you know about ESPN, their docs are fantastic. A lot can be said about the company, things that were good, things that are not good, things that no longer are as good as they once were. But when it comes to the 30 for 30s in their documentary department, they generally do not spare any expense and they get it right. If you don't believe me, the OJ documentary won an Academy Award because of the fact it was so beautifully wrought and put together and uh, Ezra Edelman and the whole team there. So in terms of the last dance, it's not the OJ doc. Let me get that out of the way. It's not going to be something that's going to be winning Academy Awards or Emmys or whatever. I don't think it has, uh, you know, the same power and the same sweep as that. Uh, This is about a basketball team and they look at social issues, but it's not quite like the way the OJ trial was literally a microcosm of America and race and culture and power and deceit and all the rest of it. Having said that, Michael Jordan certainly is a fascinating person. He is uh, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. I would say not even arguably. I don't, and I think he's the best basketball player of all time. The six championships still seem ridiculous when you say them out loud. And he was a global brand unto himself. And there's no denying that the nostalgia with which the documentary is rooted in is very successful. I mean, you go on Twitter, people are just talking about, oh, how great is the soundtrack? I mean, tremendous. Outkast and uh, Black Sheep and there's so many good songs from the 90s hip-hop uh, seeing all the vintage video from the 90s, even the style, you know, the baggy clothes, the earrings, the sunglasses, all of that is really successful. But I, I think that there's a couple of major flaws within the doc, one of which is this they're demonizing Jerry Krause, who is the general manager of the Chicago Bulls. And I don't deny that Jordan and Pippen and Phil Jackson, the head coach, are correct in, in blaming Krause for the fact the dynasty was broken apart because of Krause's ego and Napoleon complex. He was just so penurious. I mean, there's no reason Scotty Pippen shouldn't have been paid more. Originally, when he signed, as the documentary makes clear, he had two people in his house in wheelchairs, a brother and a father. So Jerry Reinsdorf offered him seven years, $18 million. He took it. But he clearly was worth more than the money. And Reinsdorf rather callously says, listen, once you sign the deal, I don't want to talk to you. I don't don't care what you think. You sign the deal. So deal with it, which I think is a terrible way to treat your employees. Um... So I don't deny the fact that Scottie Pippen and Jordan, these guys, have a reason to not like Jerry Krause. And, you know, Reinsdorf, listen, as the owner, he's going to take some shots naturally. But the problem with the doc is when you're having a villain, look at Succession. We've got different villains. You could say Logan is a villain. You could say Kendall is a villain. You could say the competing companies are villains, Sandy, Stewie. Well, in the case of this, Krause is the villain – But he never gets to talk. He doesn't have a voice. The the only voice he has is from clips of that era. And the reason why is he passed away. He died three years ago. So one of the flaws of the documentary is you can't be hammering a guy who doesn't get a chance to give his piece. And I just don't think that's, I don't want to say it's fair, but it's just not as very much of an even-handed documentary. And again, I'm sure those guys are right. Everything I've ever heard or read is Jerry Krause was a huge problem in the fact this team didn't stay together. But it would have been nice to have seen his perspective on these things. Uh, in the most recent episode, Jordan and they beat the magic. I'm like, how do I not see Shaquille O'Neal in the interview? How do I not see Penny Hardaway in the interview? Like, those guys need to be in there as well. So at times, uh, I do think the supporting cast could be rounded out. Having said that, The lovely Carmen Electra makes an appearance talking about Dennis Rodman, what it was like dating him, which is funny. I love Bob Costas. Bob is telling stories of NBA and NBC. David Aldridge is really good. He's telling stories of that era. Michael Wilbon, always excellent. But of course, the principal character is the most interesting. And say this for Michael Jordan, he is nothing if not authentic. Now, spoiler alert, I don't really care for Jordan. Quite simply, he was the one always breaking my heart. I cheered for the Knicks growing up. I love John Starks. I love Patrick Ewing because I love Spike Lee. So I loved Malcolm X, came out in 92. Who does Spike Lee like? He likes the Knicks. Okay, he always wears a Knicks hat. Great, I'll be a Knicks fan. And of course, the Knicks Bulls had those great matchups in the 90s. Uh, So I despised Jordan and the Bulls because they were always winning and they're the ones that kept the Knicks away from winning, especially in 93. And I mentioned Ewing and Starks, but Oakley, those great physical teams and those great battles, Pat Riley coaching them. So I never cared for Jordan on that level as a fan. And also I think, and the best part of the documentary to me was episodes five and six. I thought the first four episodes were, were delving in hagiography. I mean, they're just, I'm literally waiting for Jordan to like part the Red Sea and walk on water. I mean, listen, every person has got some flaws. So thankfully, episodes five and six, after showing he's a brilliant player and an incredible winner and ruthless and calculating, he's also not a very good teammate. Sam Smith spoke, pointed out the Jordan rules. uh, That came out. Horace Grant, they believe, was the guy who was giving information. Horace denies it. But basically, Jordan was a prick, was not a good teammate, was always barking at guys, demeaning, et cetera. You've got a sequence where Jordan talks about Steve Kerr and the way he does regret the fact he went too hard at Steve Kerr, but he respected the fact Kerr punched him and shoved him in the face. Okay, fine. They got over it. Fine. But then the other stuff as well, which I thought was the most potent, which was Jordan not standing up for social issues. And in 1990, I believe it is, Jesse Helms, who had a terrible track record against African Americans in North Carolina, was running against um, a black candidate. And Jordan's mom reached up to Jordan and said, listen, it'd really be meaningful if you supported this guy. And The famous Jordan quote, which he says was in jest, which is why he doesn't apologize for it. He says he said it to Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant on the bus, which was, Republicans buy sneakers too, meaning I'm not going to get into this. Now, he did say he made a contribution towards the Democratic contenders campaign, but did not want to get involved. And his viewpoint is, listen, I just want to be a basketball player. That's it. I'm not going to be a political figure. I'm not about social issues. I just want to play ball. And that's fine. But I just think you fall short if you're going to try to compare him to other greats of his race, like Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and Arthur Ashe and Will Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, et cetera. And listen, all those guys got flaws. Jim Brown has a terrible track record of abuse towards women. Muhammad Ali was a noted womanizer, and his treatment of Joe Frazier was despicable. Um, you know, all these guys have got issues, but Jordan, in addition to being a womanizer and a gambling addict, also did not stick up for his people, so to speak, at a really tough time. And I was texting a friend of mine about it. He said, well, listen, those other guys were dealing with an America that was segregated. Look at Jackie Robinson. And I said, oh, what a naive point of view to think race was no longer an issue in 1990 or that race is no longer an issue today in 2020. You can look at what's happening in Georgia in the news right now. So I think Jordan falls short in terms of being deified with those other guys. Now, as an athlete, of course, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. I'd like to make an argument for LeBron, Kobe, whoever you want, but I think it's Jordan. And as I said, at least I give him credit for being authentic. He does not want to be anything he is not. I wish there was more of a look at his warts and all, so to speak, but I believe he's a producer on the projects. Of course, he's not going to uh, give his consent to a documentary that's going to make him look bad, but he does answer those social issues questions. Uh, When his father was murdered, they addressed the fact there was rumors it was a gambling conspiracy that his father was murdered because of gambling debts. He categorically denies that. Bob Costas points out there's not a thimble of truth to that. And I do think Jordan's right when he said, listen, people just got tired of me winning. Eventually, people get tired of the guy on the mountaintop. They try to bring you down a little bit, and that's life. Uh, I did find it amusing just how bad a baseball player he was. Terry Francona's a great guy, but Tito trying to point out Jordan hitting 202 in A was a great achievement. I, I'm not going to buy that one. Did drive in 50 runs. And then, of course, he went back to basketball. But listen, in terms of our purposes here on Cinephile, you're looking at a story. Is the subject interesting? Absolutely. Is he available? Yes. Michael Jordan is throughout every episode giving his detailed experiences. And there is lots of great moments. If you are a Jordan fan, you are going to love the times that he torts LeBradford when he just shut up Clyde Drexler, uh, shut down Gary Payton. His rage towards Isaiah Thomas still hates the guy to this day. At, at, At no time is it not an interesting and compelling documentary. I just don't think it's an equal to some of the other ESPN works, which is why I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Still two more episodes to go. The ratings have been gigantic for ESPN because, of course, there's no live sports and people are dying for any sort of sports content. And I do think people love the nostalgia. My thought when I look at Twitter as I'm watching it, people raving about it, well, clearly everybody's old because I'm 41. So 1998, I was 18. So everybody's in their 40s and 50s is, of course, loving this piece of work from ESPN. Joe is younger than me. He's 31. So he's got a different viewpoint when it comes to Jordan and the Bulls. Joe, your thoughts on the last dance?
1: Well, I mean, it's like what you just said. I think it's really hitting this itch in the absence of live sports that a lot of people need right now, and I like it for that. And I do think it's captivating. I do think it's entertaining. But everything that you're saying, Adnan, is exactly what Ken Burns, the documentarian, said too. He came out completely against the last dance. Because of what you mentioned earlier, Jordan's production company, Jump 23, is involved with the project, and its quote was, I find it to be the opposite direction of where we need to be going. If you are there influencing the very fact of it getting made, it means that certain aspects that you don't necessarily want in the documentary are going to be in it, period. And he says he would never, ever do something like that. So it's a real mixed bag. He's he's really pushing a narrative, and you see Jordan in the best light. So I like it, but I, I agree that it seems like they're putting out a huge, you know, uh, one specific image of Jordan.
0: That's great that Ken Burns said that. I had no idea. I mean, I don't respect anybody more than Ken Burns when it comes to documentaries. So that really serves my point. I'm glad you noted that, Joe, because uh, – I couldn't agree more. Like if the, deck, if the deck is stacked, then of course you're not going to get a true telling of it. For example, look at Errol Morris. We reviewed his uh, work about Steve Bannon. I mean, Steve Bannon has got to know going in, Errol Morris probably not is on his side, but Steve Bannon, to his credit, is willing to sit down and go, all right, here's my side of things. Do with it what you will. He trusts the filmmaker enough to tell his story. And Errol Morris, his viewpoint doesn't agree with him. But then some critics thought that Aaron Morris wasn't hard enough on him. But the point is, you still give the guy a microphone, but then you have to dictate how the story's told. If Jordan's production company's involved, well, then of course they're not going to paint a true picture of what the guy is which is certainly unfortunate. Danny Chow of The Atlantic says, serves as an education, a reintroduction, and a spiritual reunion for one of the great basketball teams of all time. It is as farcically self-involved as it sounds, but how else would one capture Jordan's singular, single-minded essence? That's pretty funny. I will say this. If you're like me and not a Jordan fan, you might find interest in some of the other stuff. As I mentioned, I think Pippen's a really interesting person and a character his backstory was not aware of, the tragedy he overcame. I always find Phil Jackson interesting, although he was a disaster running the Knicks. Just the whole Zen Buddhism, how does he build the whole team together? And of course, Dennis Rodman. I mean, he was about as unorthodox and as colorful as it gets. Episode three, I believe, focused on Rodman. So the supporting characters are certainly very interesting and definitely have good stories to tell. Next up, Never Seen Rounders from 1998. I said, let me go see Rounders. Come on, how have I not seen this before? Set against the backdrop of New York's high-stakes underground poker world, Mike McDermott, a MasterCard player who trades the poker playing rounds for law school and a shot at new life with his girlfriend. For Mike, the new life he is taking out seems to be a legitimate road to success, but it is short on thrills and excitement of backroom poker games. When his friend is released from prison, Mike is faced with the high-stakes dilemma of his life. Matt Damon playing Mike McDermott. And listen, if you love poker, you're going to love this movie. I am not a poker player. I've never played poker in my life. Props to Hank Azaria and Brockmeyer on finishing up their terrific four-year run at IFC. I got an email from Adam Freifeld, who's uh, Azaria's guy. I did a quick video because Brockmire is being honored at the Paley Center in New York City. So, you know, friends of Brockmire. Me, Costas. Uh, Carl Ravage, Eddie Perez, my buddies from ESPN, uh, Tim Kirchin, Jason Stark, basically anybody who's been either involved with Brockmire in the baseball world. I, of course, wasn't on the show like some of those guys, but I've interviewed Hank a couple of times here on the, on the podcast. I have a Brockmire bobblehead Hank gave me, which I tweeted out. So friends of Brockmire were involved with that. The reason I mention that is Hank sent out a note to all of us saying, listen, in, in, in light of what's happened with COVID-19, he's putting together a giant poker game uh, to try to raise funds. So like, I don't even know the names on this list, but you know, Vince Vaughn or people like that are playing poker. So I, of course, wrote back, Hank, I'd love to. I just, I'm not a poker guy, which is funny. When I'm watching Rounders, I'm laughing at how little I know about poker, but I give the movie credit for that. I I, I was worried it would be poker for dummies. Okay, here's what a nut flush is. Here's what this is. No, no, you shouldn't do that. And they don't, to their credit. It's written by David Levy and Brian Koppelman. Brian Koppelman, friend of uh, Cadence 13 here. Um, they just go into it. So it's, it's, it's kind of like basketball. It's like the last hands. They're not explaining, oh, why was the rivalry with Charles Barkley so important? Like, oh, here's what it is. If you don't know Barkley and his uh, persona, then tough, tough deal. And so similarly with rounders, if you don't know poker, you just go along for the ride. So certainly the verbiage, I'm not really following, but I can tell by the acting of Damon or Edward Orton, okay, they're in trouble. They've got a good hand. This is a bad hand, et cetera. Uh, And it's certainly a watchable entertainment. The best thing about it is the performances. It feels like a time capsule now. It came out 22 years ago. And Matt Damon is good in the movie. But Edward Norton is fantastic. He plays Worm, who's released from prison. He's the bad friend. And in many ways, their relationship mirrors as to so many movies. They're so reliant on Mean Streets. And Harvey Keitel played the good one, so to speak, and Robert De Niro played the wild one. It was, as Owen Gladwell had said, as if that, or maybe it was Pauline Kael, actually, excuse me, I believe Kaitel was like uh, the ego, and uh, De Niro was like the id in Freudian terms. So in terms of this movie, Damon is the ego, and Edward Norton is the id. He is bad news, but Damon feels an attachment to him, and he's going to try to help him get out of this gambling debt by playing a bunch of cards. Martin Landau, also along for the ride, uh, playing a judge who's very kind to Damon I love John Turturro, Joey Kenish. I wish he was in it more. He's in a small role. But the guy to watch it for cast-wise is John Malkovich. I've often heard about Randers and John Malkovich playing a Russian. He's only in the movie 15 minutes, but now I understand why people talk about him so much. On the last episode of Cinephile, Joel and I talked about great over-actors. Well, Malkovich certainly is in the conversation, and he is chewing scenery in Rounders. He is in the climactic finale, which is a very predictable ending to the movie. Because it's like a sports movie, right? It just happens to be poker. They go up, they go down, they got to win the money back, here we go. And Malkovich, of course, is playing the villain. He is the nemesis. And it's just his Russian accent and his persona, it's so funny and it's so entertaining. He's the best part of the movie and certainly worth your money's worth. But ultimately, like I said, the story is a little too predictable for my taste. I recommend it because I'd never seen it before and I enjoy the performances. And like I said, it feels like a time capsule of 1998 New York. But I don't think the film is ever truly captivating or riveting I know Bill Simmons would disagree with me. He talked to Matt Damon about it uh, when he had uh, him on the Ringer podcast, how he thinks it's a great movie. But I I think it's a a pretty predictable movie. But I did enjoy it for the performances. I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Janet Maslin, the New York Times, said, Law student as high-stakes gambler. Entertaining, but less than meets the eye. Trevor Johnson of Time Out writes, The end result is still short of a winning hand, since the screenplay is so utterly predictable. And Rita Kempley, Washington Post, wrote, the wholesome Pops poker face alone, however, hardly accounts for the film's failure to thrill. Damon's character doesn't really have that much at stake in the story's outcome. Rounders. Joe, have you seen it?
1: I have seen it years ago. I remember, you know, thinking it was entertaining when I did see it, but the whole time I was trying to look at it through the lens of it actually being a secret Goodwill hunting sequel. Because I'm thinking Matt Damon's character leaves at the end of Goodwill Hunting to see about a girl, goes to New York, doesn't work out, meets someone else, is a genius, really good at poker, and you take it from there. So <laughs> uh, I remember it being entertaining, but I'd like it better as a bad Goodwill Hunting sequel than anything.
0: That's hilarious. I've never heard that before. Malkovich playing the role of uh, Robin Williams, if only he'd been a shrink. And been offering advice towards him. Last movie before we get to the Mount Rushmore and some entertainment news. Rest in peace, Jerry Stiller. Ace in the Hole. What a movie. Props to Ben Mankowitz and TCM for airing this. Brad Bird, who of course Joe loves, he's an animation director, did The Incredibles. He was doing his essential films with Mank, and he said, You gotta watch Ace in the Hole. And he said, I could have gone with the more predictable Billy Wilder films uh, like Sunset Boulevard or The Apartment, which you all should see. Sunset Boulevard is one of my all time favorites. Me and Scott Rogowski love it. But Ace in the Hole is one that not many people have seen. And Billy Wilder lists it as his favorite movie. I mean, this is a guy who did Some Like It Hot, one of the great comedies of all time. And he's saying, no, no, Ace in the Hole is my favorite. Here's the story. And why I watch it again is it's so timely. We live in an era now where people don't trust the media, fake news and all the rest of it. People watch the news that they want to hear, which aligns with their political tastes and interests. Well, you look at media, and there's been definitely movies which have shown journalism in a positive light, like All the President's Men and Spotlight but there's been lots of movies that show it in a bad way of facing the crowd network, which is beyond brilliant and ace in the hole, which features quite possibly the most unscrupulous reporter ever. Charles Tatum, a down on his luck reporter takes a job at the small New Mexico newspaper. That was my first thought, by the way, New Mexico, Yeah, years before Breaking Bad made it famous. This is 1951, the guys there in Albuquerque. The job is pretty boring until he finds a man trapped in an old Indian dwelling. He jumps at the chance to make a name for himself by taking over and prolonging the rescue effort and feeding stories to major newspapers. He creates a national media sensation and milks it for all it's worth until things go terribly wrong. The great Kirk Douglas plays Chuck Tatum. He's got such screen presence. I mean, the the cleft from heaven. As soon as you see him on screen, he's always robust and powerful and just chomping at the bit. He's got one of the funniest lines ever in a movie. He's talking to the news editor. He's trying to impress in New Mexico. And he says, I've I've lied to a man wearing a belt. I've lied to a man wearing suspenders. But I'd never be so foolish as to lie to a man wearing a belt and suspenders. And they got to a shot of the guy. This older gentleman wearing a belt and suspenders. That is a guy who is not taking any chances when it comes to butt cleavage. He wants to make sure his pants are up. It's so funny. And Mankwitz mentioned it on TCM as well. What a great sequence. Uh, later on, my, my guy Rogowski loves it as well. He was talking about the sequence. Kirk Douglas is talking about much he misses New York. And much he hates New Mexico. He goes, you know, the eight spindly trees in front of Rockefeller Square. And who's Yogi Berra? He asked one of the reporters. And she says, isn't that a religion? He's like, yeah, you're right. That's a religion. The religion of the New York Yankees. It's so good. But as uh, the plots of details, he finds a guy in a mine and he goes to the sheriff and they say, how do we get him out? And he said, well, in 12 to 15 hours, we could get him out. Or we could drill from the top of the cave and it'll take six or seven days. And Douglas goes, that's the one we're going to do. So he colludes with a corrupt sheriff. And as the story explained, he ends up writing these amazing stories. And as he tells one of the cub reporters, listen, when I see 200 people die overseas, nobody cares. One story, one man, human interest, that's what sells newspapers. And naturally, the story builds. And the guy in the mind has no idea. He realizes he's being made a sensation. Douglas is bringing him the paper every day. Look, look what I wrote about you. Look what people are saying about you. And outside a, a gathering storm is they They sing a song about the guy. We're going to rescue him. It's coming. The drill is going. But slowly but surely, he's losing his mind. Like The drill just won't stop. And once he's begging Kirk Douglass, please turn this stupid drill off. I can't think. I can't do anything. But Douglas doesn't care about him. He cares about money. He cares about making a great newspaper. Roger Ebert. In a lesser movie, Tatum would share our sympathy for the pathetic man. He's on a parabola in that direction, but wants it to intersect with the moment of his own greatest fame. Nathan Lee of the Village Voice. A lurid pulp indictment of exploitation, opportunism, doctored intelligence, torture for profit, insatiable greed, and shady journalism. As Billy Wilder himself said, Everybody in this movie is either vicious or an idiot. <laughs> or you could say they are just vicious idiots. And the reason I first saw this movie 15 years ago, Criterion released it. And Spike Lee, it's one of his favorite movies. And the last shot, Kirk Douglas walks up and says, I'm a $1,000 a day newspaper man. You can have me for free. And he plops down in front of the camera. The camera is sitting on the ground. Spike Lee paid homage to that in Malcolm X. It's a great shot. It's the last shot of Ace in the Hole. And he also used it in Malcolm X as a tip of the cap to Billy Wilder. So I said, all right, it's good enough for Spike Lee. It's good enough for me. You should seriously watch Ace in the Hole. I watched it on TCM Turner Classic Movies. I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Like I said, it was ahead of its time. And if you don't like journalists, you think they're all muckraking scum, well, then Ace in the Hole is the movie for you. Joe, it's a beauty.
1: I will definitely check it out. I haven't seen it before. But man, Kurt Douglas and Michael Douglas, that's some strong genes in their family. They look exactly the same. Um, I, I have a fun fact for you really quick. The working title for this movie was The Human Interest Story, and it sounds like that's exactly what the movie is about.
0: Yeah, but you're right. What a much better title, Ace in the Hole. I mean, at one point, you're right, that's what he's telling the other reporter, going, that's what sells papers, a human interest story. Nobody cares about big events, and they got to build this trip with this one guy. But, God, it's, uh, it's certainly a powerful movie, and true to Billy Wilder, it's got a very acidic tone and a very dark movie. It was not a box office success, which is the surprise of no one. A movie like this, I couldn't imagine anybody wanted to go see it because it wasn't, uh, you know, a popular crowd pleaser, but god, it is certainly a great one. All right, those are your reviews coming up next. Some entertainment news plus a Mount Rushmore tear-jerking scenes in movies. That's next. Sad news to pass along. I'm sure you are all aware now. Jerry Stiller, the great comedian who launched his career opposite wife Anne Mir in the 1950s. But I think most people know him as the high-strung. Frank Costanza and Seinfeld has died at the age of 92. He also was on the hit sitcom King of Queens. Arthur character, also very high-strung. Jerry Stiller, multi-talented performer. He was in The Taking of Pelham 123. He was also in Hairspray. Also wrote an autobiography, Married to Laughter. About his 50-year marriage to his soulmate and comedic cohort, Mira, died in 2015. Uh, 36 appearances alongside Mira on the Ed Sullivan show, but really, it's sciful that everyone is going to remember him for. Co-creator and model for The Bro, a brassiere for men, a Korean war cook who inflicted food poisoning on his entire unit, and an ever-simmering salesman controlling his explosive temper with the shouted mantra, Serenity Now! Jerry Stiller, father of Ben Stiller. At least people were talking about Festivus and sharing a lot of moments on Twitter. 92. Great run for Jerry Stiller, Joe.
1: Oh, fantastic. And, and, he, and he's somewhat, his, the longevity of his career. I love funny families, too. So the fact that Ben Stiller gets his comedy chops from Jerry. Um, but I will also note that the first role I recognized him in was in Zoolander all the way back in 2001 when he was playing uh, Derek Zoolander's manager, Mari Ballstein, and he's really funny in that movie. So everyone check that out again.
0: (laughs) Nice. Shout out to Zoolander. Other news, Jim Gaffin is preparing to play former Toronto mayor Rob Ford in a scripted series currently in the works at AMC. Uh, Jesse McCown is going to write and executive producer Ed Helms is along for the ride as well. The dark comedy series, would detail the rise and fall of the controversial Ford who served as the mayor of Toronto from 2010 to 2014. After many years as a city councillor, he was infamously caught on video smoking crack cocaine during his re-election and was known to suffer from other substance abuse issues. Should the project move forward, it would not be the first on-screen depiction of Ford. Damian Lewis played Ford in the film Run This Town, which debuted at South by Southwest last year. That's interesting. Damian Lewis, of course, known from Homeland uh, I believe he's a Brit, maybe a Scott. Uh, interesting, he's playing Rob Ford. Gaffigan, funny guy. Letterman loves him. Always used to love him on late night or on the late show. Uh, obviously, being from Toronto, I found this story to be of interest. I mean, it's still shocking to me when people say that Rob Ford, that's right, Toronto Mayor was smoking crack. Although, uh, Marion Barry, Joe, there is precedence for a guy in politics liking a little crack cocaine.
1: Oh yeah, I've heard. I've heard great things. Washington D.C. of some crack. I I have to ask though, as a Torontonian, Toronto, what what are you got What are people from Toronto called? No, you're right, Torontonian, That was correct. Oh, cool. All right, as a Torontonian, how do you feel? How did you feel about Rob Ford? And uh, how do you feel about Jim Gaffigan playing him?
0: Well, I'm excited to see Gaffigan play because certainly it's going to be a story with a lot of comedy to it. I, I, it was funny at first. You kind of laughed, but you go, "Oh my God, Toronto's mayor's on crack." But then I actually thought it was quite a sad story. I mean, this guy's obviously dealing with substance abuse issues and is not fit for office, quite frankly. He shouldn't be doing these things and still be a part of it. So it was always a little bit of mixed feelings. I I, I was laughing along with the punchlines, and I enjoyed it. And I always appreciate any sort of notoriety for my hometown, just as you're always repping St. Paul, Minneapolis. Uh, But after a while, I was kind of like, this is kind of sad. And then, of course, he died. And now his brother, Doug Ford, I don't know if people realize, is the the, uh, premier of Ontario. So it's interesting. The Fords are still going, although I think... He's doing a better job than his brother did, and certainly I'm, I'm hoping he's a lot cleaner as well. Uh, speaking of clean, Christopher Moltisanti was never that on The Sopranos, played by Michael Imperioli. But speaking of The Sopranos, they are back. That's right. Writer David Chase wrote a brand new scene for the show's characters, and Imperioli and Steve Sharippa, who played Christopher and Bobby Bacala, on their Talking Sopranos podcast, they read through a scene, and is saying it's the first time Chase has written them since 2007. He was nice enough to let us read it. Pretty funny, because as people know, in the GM shop with me and Michael Lombardi, we were joking about the Sopranos living through a quarantine right now. And thankfully, David Chase listened to us and wrote an episode. AJ Soprano admitting, at one time I wanted to work for Trump. Silvio Dante, Tony's consigliere manager of the money laundering strip club, the Bada Bing, saying, We told the girls we'd keep them all in furlough. Lap Lap dancers were the first to go. Uh, Tony also describing sexuality's pork store uses a mafia hangout as an essential critical infrastructure. And Adriana Lacerba referring to her irritable bowel syndrome as an underlying condition. Pretty funny to imagine what would it be if the Sopranos were around right now dealing with COVID-19, which is, of course, a very serious matter. In terms of the Sopranos canon, the many saints of Newark which is what David Chase has been working on. That is a prequel film to The Sopranos starring James Gandolfini's son, Michael. That will be released March of 2021. So 10 months away for some more Sopranos content. That's your news. Now it's time for Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore tearjerker scenes in movies. Thanks to Dan Stanzig and Mike Ollick Jr. for the idea. God, this is a tough one, man. Right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you, it's a lot of animation for me. Animation is what gets me going, the tear ducts flowing. Inside out, bing bong sacrifice. Who's the one who likes to play bing bong, bing bong? I mean, Richard Kind gives himself up. And there's nothing more dramatic than somebody willing to give themselves up for someone else, right? You think of Dickens. Tale of Two Cities is a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done. It is a far, far better place I go than I've ever gone. Like when people give themselves up for love, for heroism, I mean, look at Casablanca, right? Bogart gives up the love of his life because it's more important to the resistance and more important to fighting the Nazis in the war. That's the best. You cannot top that, which is why the great Richard Kind uh, breaks everyone's heart. You know, take me to the moon and then just evaporates inside out. God, great, great scene. More animation for you. Toy Story 3. That's right. Of course, gave us the idea we've got to do this. Andy gives the toys away. I mean, I just watched Toy Story 3 again the other day. At least that scene. So powerful and a real metaphor for people giving up their childhood. The innocence, it's like innocence lost, right? His innocence is gone. He's now grown up. It's very emotional. Up, opening montage, You Killing Me, that first 10 minutes. In particular, I'll give you one scene. Literally, it's one shot. They're painting the nursery and the camera pans to the right and the mom drops her head down and they're in a doctor's office, and she's just been told that she miscarried. I mean, that 12 seconds you start crying at, you go, oh, my God, the joy of life having a child to boom, the devastating sadness of losing that child. So there's three right there. In the interest of not having all animation, although I could go with Simba, discovering Mufasa's trampled body. Honorable mention, The Wrestler. I'm just a broken-down piece of meat. I deserve to be alone. Mickey Rourke dealing with self-loathing. But I got to go with About Schmidt. Jack Nicholson is a noted overactor, and many times he goes over the top. But in the case of About Schmidt, Alexander Payne gave him direction early on, and Nicholson said, oh, you actually want me to act for a change? I haven't done that in a while. And he actually acted. He was more understated. He plays a guy who's seriously depressed. He can't relate to his children. His daughter's marrying a guy he can't stand. He's lonely. He's sad. He's lost his wife, who he finds out it was cheating on him. And now all he has is a pen pal relationship with a kid in Africa. And at the end, when Ndugo paints for him, I mean, it's about as powerful it gets. Because the movie is very, very funny and darkly funny. And yet that moment is so poignant and so sweet. And Nicholson's character starts crying. I love that movie and I love that scene. My Mel Rushmore of tearjerker scenes in movies. It has got uh, three animation picks, as I mentioned. Toy Story 3, Up, Inside Out, and About Schmidt. Joe, what do you got? And by the way, another honorable mention. Remember me, Coco. I mean, God, when she starts playing the song, how do you not start crying there?
1: Oh yeah, my dad. I went to Puerto Rico with my family last summer. My dad cried during that very scene in Coco. Oh, um, it's it's tearjerker. I will. I'm gonna do a reverse order. I have three animated movies and one live action movie, so I'll start with the live action, and that's Coffee's execution and The Green Mile and everything that led up to that moment. And then I will go with The Lion King when Simba finds Mufasa's body after he's trampled. I think that's a very powerful scene for a lot of kids. What you said about Up, the opening montage, it always, when I think about it, I'm always amazed by how it can take you through every level of emotion without any words in nine minutes. And it doesn't matter how old you are, your are understanding the emotion behind it i i love that that would be my number one but uh my sleeper pick is the iron giant specifically at the end when the iron giant says that he is not a gun it is an underrated movie it's great it's the movie brad bird directed before the incredibles and so i think everyone should watch that they haven't seen it. so i have the iron giant up the lion king and the green mile
0: Love it. I, you you uh, praised the Iron Giant before, so I'm glad we're getting it out there. Hopefully people will watch it uh other options we did not include some of these i mean they, they dip into parody because now they're just so funny like goodwill hunting it's not your fault like, i think i'd start laughing i saw that scene again <laughs> cast away wilson floats away i mean i love hanks i think that's his best performance but i would start laughing when i watch this again i mean there's a floating volleyball and he starts crying i'm wilson i'm sorry uh you complete me Jerry Maguire. mcguire would laugh at at this point gandalf death aftermath no old yeller gets shot i guess that's a tough one sure How about Wrath of Khan? Spock, I have and always shall be your friend. That's a pretty good one. Uh, Schindler's List, by the way, another auto mention. I could have got more. That's obviously a very powerful scene. Oscar Schindler regrets the fact he could have done more. Definitely lots of great options, a great list. That's our Mount Rushmore tearjerker scenes in movies. Total Recall all right time now for total recall oscars from 2006 the films of 2005 when crash won best picture i thought about this one because there's an article I god i wish i remember it right now but google it you'll find it saying that crash was one of the worst best picture winners of all time 15th anniversary of it winning i don't know if it's one of the worst of all time but i don't think it should have won best picture joe give us the other nominees
1: brokeback mountain capote Good Night and good luck and munich
0: Man, this is tough. Toss up for me. I mean, listen, I think Brokeback Mountain is a great film. And I mean, at the time, unfortunately, everything becomes shorthand. It becomes, oh, it's the gay cowboy movie. But it's a lot more than that. I mean, I just talked about tear jerking scenes. I mean, any movie in which two characters love does not stand the test of time, whether they're straight or gay. I mean, it's quite frankly, one of the great screen romances I've ever seen. You know, this can be up there with a lot of the classics of the past, and obviously it was novel and new because it was two men, but the way that it's shot and the way the story is told, it is heartbreaking that these two guys cannot be together because of circumstances around them. And uh, that's another movie I definitely got choked up at watching when they can't be together. I wish I knew how to quit you. By the way, if I watch that now, I would again giggle because Ang Lee used it in his acceptance speech, but it is a really powerful scene. Having said all of that, I would have been happy if it had won. I think Crash is definitely overrated, should not have won Best Picture, although I love Paul Haggis, who was one of the producers, fellow Canadian. But good night and good luck, all right? Come on. The journalism bones in my blood. I mentioned earlier the movies like Ace in the Hole, which show journalism at their worst. Well, this shows journalism at its best. I love this George Clooney movie. I think it's his best movie. Uh, he obviously cared a lot in putting it together. Supporting role is Fred Friendly, but his dad... Uh, is it a broadcaster, and in many ways, he made the movie for his dad. It's about Edward R. Murrow and the way he was combating communism and McCarthyism through his nightly uh, broadcast. And he would always set off by saying, "Good night and good luck." Hundred minutes, black and white. I think it's a beautiful movie. I love it. I go, "Good night and good luck."
1: I like that choice. I I'm gonna go with Brokeback Mountain. But as I'm reviewing the list, I'm just wondering. How Walk the Line wasn't nominated for Best Picture that year. I mean, we'll get to that a little bit later, but looking at it now initially, I'm just wondering how Walk the Line wasn't nominated.
0: Great point. Great point. If Walk the Line was on there, I might even vote for that, to be honest. That's how much I love that movie. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm glad that Reese Witherspoon won, but you're right. I would definitely have voted ahead of Capote or Munich. Should have at least been one of the five nominees. Best director was Ang Lee. As I just explained, I think that was the right choice. The way he uses sound, uh, the way he shoots it, um, you know, it's hard to show and love falling apart, but Ang Lee is so good at getting the rhythm of the scene. He really uses the atmosphere very well in terms of telling the story. Ang Lee, for sure, I'm glad he won. Who else was nominated?
1: Bennett Miller for Capote, Paul Haggis for Crash, George Clooney for Good Night and Good Luck, and Steven Spielberg for Munich.
0: Yeah, Ang Lee, the winner, like I said, rightfully so. My runner-up would have been Clooney. It's the best movie he's ever directed, Good Night and Good Luck.
1: I'll go with Clooney then. Um, If you're going Ang Lee, I'll go with Good Night and Good Luck. I love it. Best actor is one of my favorite actors, although it's not one of my
0: favorite performances of him, but I'm glad that at least he won an Oscar before his sad death. That would be Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Capote. Great actor, one of my favorite actors of all time, and a great performance. But what else was nominated?
1: Terrence Howard for Hustle and Flow. Heath Ledger for Brokeback Mountain, Joaquin Phoenix for Walk the Line, and David Strathairn for Good Night, Good Luck. Okay, this
0: is painful. I just told you, Philip seymour Hoppins, like one of my five favorite actors of all time, so I don't necessarily want to revise history. I think he should have won an Oscar maybe for some other movies, but if you're asking me, honestly, forget about my love of the actor, just five performances alone, I'm going David Strathairn. I mean, there's one scene George Clooney is breaking in the commentary, he goes, look at that face. The look that David Strathairn gives. He goes, look at that bulldog. Like, he is incredible in that movie. Chain smoking, fighting for the right ideals of the country. It's so powerful. I love Strathairn. And be honest with you, as Joe mentioned, Walk the Line, if I had a number two choice, I'd probably go with Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, I have smashed Joker to bits, but I love Walk the Line. And I think his performance is absolutely brilliant. I give him credit because he sang the music, Unlike Jamie Foxx, who won an Oscar for Ray, he was not singing in Ray, he was lip-syncing. Joaquin Phoenix had the balls to actually sing Johnny Cash's music. Those those eyes are like black holes, he's so intense. I think he convincingly shows Johnny's drug addiction, his issues with his father, and also why he was head over heels for Reese Witherspoon. I, I think that's what Joaquin Phoenix's best performance. And listen, Terrence Howard, I'm glad Hustle & Flow got recognized playing a DJ. Movies like that don't often get recognized. Heath Ledger is the heart of Brokeback Mountain, which in many ways should have won Best Picture. And Seymour Hoffman, listen, I don't think it's one of his best movies just because I don't think the role is that great. But he disappears into the character. I mean, my God, he was a big guy. He lost weight for the role. The way he got that voice, those certain affectations. I mean, if you look at Philip Seymour Hoppin in an interview and then watch Capote, he is absolutely unrecognizable. I just don't think the movie is as compelling as the others, but it is a brilliant performance. It's a long way of saying, Joe, I'd vote for Strathairn. But honestly, if we could go four-way tie, and Phoenix, Ledger, and Seymour Hoppin, I would be good with that.
1: It's tough, and I agree with you that Joaquin Phoenix's best movie is Walk the Line. So I, w- I would vote for him, hands down. Plus, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan, so there's a little bit of bias there. But the Academy, they prove it time and again. They love it when actors and actresses take on historical figures and, and, and so that they have a point of reference to compare. And I think they showed it this year with Philip Seymour Hoffman winning, although that performance is incredible.
0: No, you're right. They love biographies and they love when an actor, you know, undergoes a metamorphosis, right? Actor puts on a lot of weight. De Niro, actor loses a lot of weight. Joaquin Phoenix Joker. I mean, they love that stuff. And of course, Hina Hoffman disappeared in the role. Reese Witherspoon, you close your eyes, you feel like it's June Carter Cash. I mean, incredible job of replicating her music, her style, and proving why she was the heart of resurrecting Johnny Cash's life and a stability for him. Absolutely no brainer that she won, but who else was nominated?
1: Judy Dench for Mrs. Henderson Presents, Felicity Huffman for Transamerica, Kira Knightley for Pride and Prejudice, and Charlize Theron for North Country.
0: Yeah, no-brainer for Reese Witherspoon. I don't even know what would be number two. I mean, this entire list, this is one of the easiest ones you've ever done on Total Recall, Joe. This is an
1: absolute route for Reese. Oh, 100%. Can't add to that. It's definitely Reese Witherspoon. I don't know who else it would be.
0: Supporting actor, Clooney was nominated for Best Director. Good Night and Good Luck was also nominated for Best Picture. And he himself won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, but not for Good Night and Good Luck. He won for Siriana playing Bob Barnes. Again, the Academy loves it when you look a little different. He put on 30 pounds for the role. He grew a beard. He gets roughed up. Uh, it's a great performance, but what else was nominated?
1: Matt Dillon for Crash, Paul Giamatti for Cinderella Man. Jake Gyllenhaal for Brokeback Mountain, and William Hurt, A History of Violence.
0: <laughs> I'd forgotten William Hurt got nominated. He's a lot of fun in, in History of Violence. <laughs> he is funny in that movie. The scene where he's talking to, uh, to Vigo Morton says that you, you took out one of his eyeballs. I mean, he's like he's almost like channeling Christopher Walken or Dennis Hopper in that movie, playing one of those classic villains. He's really good. I'm glad he got nominated. is one of my favorite actors, and I loved him in Cinderella Man. Pop, pop, bang. I think he really is, um, again, in many ways, the moral conscience of the movie. He props up Russell Crowe. But I, I don't think it's one of his best performances. But I love Giamatti. So maybe I'll just cheat and say, okay, body of work. I wish he'd won for Sideways. He wasn't even nominated for Sideways. So let's give him one for Cinderella Man. Um, but honestly, if I'm just going on purely performances, I'd probably go with Hall for Brokeback Mountain as Jack Twist. I've never seen Hall that vulnerable. And if I'm going to argue Brokeback Mountain should have won Best Picture, well, one of the actors should have won. So I'll go with Jake Gyllenhaal.
1: I like that logic. I would also choose Hall too. But Adnan, I was thinking last week after we did our Mount Rushmore for overactors, and I was thinking about it a lot, but I think, I don't know if he's on there yet, but I would throw Jake Gyllenhaal as an honorable mention because Parasite, way over the top. I also know if you've ever seen Velvet Budsaw before on Netflix. He's way over the top in that too. And Nightcrawler He's over the top but I really dig him in Nightcrawler. But I would throw him on that list but I would also give it to him for Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, that's a good point. Year. You
0: said Parasite, but I know you meant Okja because he's highly over the top in that movie so you're right. I would say in Okja... And you're right, Nightcrawler, mean, I'm with you 100%. I love the movie, but he's definitely overacting with those eyes and those expressions just like frothing at the mouth and recording all that stuff. You're right, he's definitely going to make a case for the Rushmore. Supporting actress Rachel Vise for The Constant Gardener. Who else was nominated?
1: Amy Adams for Junebug. Catherine Keener for Capote. Francis McDormand, North Country, and Michelle Williams, Brokeback Mountain.
0: I'd go with Michelle Williams here, Brokeback Mountain. I mean, again, a woman who uh, is in love with a man and starts to realize he's not in love with her, remote. Maybe he's in love with another man. I mean, for that era, for that time period, you couldn't imagine what's going through a woman's uh, mindset long before it was uh, socially acceptable. I thought she was terrific in the movie. Rachel Weisz, good performance, by the way. Cosmic Garter, not many people saw it. It came out in late August that year. It's her and Ray Fiennes. It's one of those good dramas um, but really didn't get a lot of pop. I'm surprised now that she won the Oscar for it, but I would have gone Michelle Williams.
1: I like Michelle Williams' Brokeback Mountain. I'll give it to Frances McDormand, though, for North Country. Um, just, one, because I love her. Two, North Country takes place on the Iron Range in Minnesota. I thought it was over. Uh, overall just a great movie, so I would go with Frances McDormand.
0: I love it. How about best original screenplay? Crash won. I love Paul Haggis. Again, Canadian. Him and Robert Moresco won, but they shouldn't have won. Who else was nominated?
1: Good night and good luck, George Clooney and Grant Heslov. Match point, Woody Allen, the squid and the whale, Noah Baumbach, and Syriana, Stephen Gagin.
0: Uh, easy one for me, of course. If I said it's going to win best picture, should have won best screenplay. Good night and good luck. Clooney and Grant Hesloff. Close second, by the way, Squid and the Whale. Noah Baumbach got a lot of love for Marriage Story, but this is a really funny script and in very many ways, as much of his work is autobiographical. Jeff Daniels plays a guy kind of based on his dad. He's this big shambling bear of a man. I'll never forget the scene. (laughs) His son and his girlfriend are going to go to the movies. He goes, what are you guys going to go see? And they say short circuit. He's like, I'm coming along, but let's watch Blue Velvet instead. I mean, he's a typical pretentious prick father. Um, but I go with goodnight and good luck.
1: Yeah, I would give it to goodnight and good luck. I did really like, like Matchpoint, but I don't like Woody Allen. So I'll go with Good Night and good luck.
0: Yeah, I, I hear you on that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I like his movies. I don't care for the guy. And you're right, Matchboy was something different for him. Definitely some more uh, dramatic scenes in that movie, Scarlett Johansson, etc. Last one, Best Adapted Screenplay. I think this was an easy pick for Broke Backbound, Larry McMurtry and Diana Osana, based on the short story by Annie Proulx. But who else was nominated?
1: Capote, The Constant Gardener, A History of Violence, and Munich.
0: As you've noted, I have not really mentioned Munich. I mean, I liked it, but I wasn't crazy about it. There's definitely people who are Spielberg fans who think it's one of his best. And uh, clearly, the Academy liked it a lot. He was nominated, of course, for Best Director in the Screenplay. But uh, it's got some good moments. I mean, the script... Speaking of, and Tony Kushner's a legendary playwright. Eric Ross, a big screenwriter as well, of course, Forrest Gump. There's one scene where they're talking about Israeli-Palestinian conflict and why the war will never end. That scene on a stairwell is really, really good. As I said, though, Brokeback Mountain's got to be the winner. There's so much done, not only with the words, but also gestures. And, you know, oftentimes in the screenplay, it's not just the words that are said. It's the words that are left unsaid. And I think Brokeback Mountain gets that right. They nail that sense of grace between these two guys. My wrap-up would be A History of Violence. Now that we look at this list, as Joe mentioned, Walk the Line should be on for Best Picture. Well, I would have taken A History of Violence as well. I mean, I, w- I would take out Capote in Munich. I would add Walk the Line and A History of Violence. A great David Cronenberg film. Josh Olsen wrote the script based on a graphic novel. But I think in this case, the Academy got it right.
1: I agree. And I, I think Brokeback Mountain, to your point earlier, if it didn't win Best Picture, I think it should win something. And so I'll give it Best Adapted Screenplay.
0: Yeah, in this case, think about it. Crash won Best Picture and also won Best Original Screenplay. Brokeback Mountain won Best Director and won Best Adapted Screenplay. So you be the judge. As I said, look up that article. It was really kind of crushed Crash for the fact it was a very uh, simple way of looking at race relations and uh, was very, uh, I guess, redactive might be the right word in terms of what people think about the film. Anyways, thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. Like I said, I know you got other options, so I really appreciate all of you listening. Next, we got uh, actor, Rob Paulson, who is a great voice actor. Pinky, Ninja Turtles, he's got a book called Voice Lessons, which I'm reading, he's gonna tell us all about his book and his fascinating life. I'll review Hollywood, which is uh, currently on Netflix, a new show from Ryan Murphy. And I'm also diving into Ozark, so we'll talk about that at some point as well. Uh, For Joe, I'm Adman. thanks so much. We'll see you at the movies.